It's Monday, May 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As various restrictive abortion bills have been enacted recently, President Trump has weighed in saying he is strongly pro-life, but also puts himself at odds with some of the more extreme bills. Attorney General Bill Barr is ready to investigate the investigators, one GOP rep is calling for impeachment, and the trade war with China continues to hurt farmers. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to break it all down. Next, genetic genealogy has been a great tool for law enforcement, leading us to the Golden State Killer and closing many other cold cases. But critics fear we might be on a slippery slope where this tool is used to investigate less serious crimes. DNA genealogy sites only let police use their info in cases of homicide or sexual assault, but for the first time it was just used to identify a suspect in a violent assault. Peter Aldis, reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us for the latest use of forensic genealogy. Finally, a conversation about the most important meal of the day, breakfast. But is it really, or is it all just marketing? Amanda Mull, writer at The Atlantic, joins us for a look at where the concept of the quick, modern American breakfast comes from, and why you shouldn't be afraid to eat a chicken parmesan hoagie for breakfast. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I couldn't be more proud to be part of an administration that has stood strong on the timeless values that have made this nation great. It stood without apology for the sanctity of human life. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Huge issue last week was all the different states passing various abortion bills. Alabama obviously passing the most restrictive, criminalizing all abortions, except for when the life of the mother is in danger, not even exceptions for rape or incest. The president has weighed in on this now. While he says he is strongly pro-life, he seems to be a little bit at odds, at least with the Alabama bill. What do we know about what the president said? The president pointed to the position that former Republican President Ronald Reagan held, that there should, at a minimum, be exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. Those were the sort of the three keys that Reagan said needed to be exempted. Trump is saying that this Alabama law doesn't allow for those, and therefore it is problematic. We're really at what experts on the issue of abortion tell me as an unprecedented time. And this Alabama law, after sort of decades of seeing anti-abortion act implement a strategy of incrementalism, have decided to just go for everything and see what the court will let them have. They didn't even make it a secret. They openly said, this is all about Roe versus Wade. We want it to be as extreme as possible so that we can get all the way up to the Supreme Court. So it's not even like they were trying to make it an issue about the life of the unborn children. They were making it totally political from the beginning. When I talked to legal experts this week about this, they said that going so far might backfire on these lawmakers and these activists in Alabama and other states. That's because they could see that lower courts reject this law, they overturn it, and they are unable to appeal because it's so clearly in violation of Roe v. Wade. And for that reason, they may find that asking for everything means that they they can't get the courts to even give it a hearing. And the president right away in his tweets, even making it a 2020 issue, he said that we've worked hard for a positive attitude about the right to life and need to stick together and win for life in 2020. Most of the 2020 Democrats are very vocal about their opposition to this. When I talk to political experts about this issue, they say that this is coming with a big political risk for Republicans. Most of the country isn't really 
strident. You know, you have the very strong opposition on either side of this issue of abortion, but most Americans fall in sort of a mushy middle. And that mushy middle is mostly people who don't really like abortion, but they don't think it should be illegal. And moving to just all out ban it risks those voters saying, you know what, maybe I go with Democrats this next time instead of Republicans. Other big political news. The Mueller report is the story that never goes away. Attorney General William Barr is now, as everybody likes to say, investigating the investigators. He's appointed U.S. Attorney John Durham to lead a probe into what started the whole Russia probe. In the meantime, Michigan GOP Congressman Justin Amash has said that President Trump's conduct could amount to be an impeachable offense. President called him a loser right away. (laughs) What do we know what's going on here? We have a lot of noise. The Mueller report was long thought to be the way that it was going to sort of quiet the noise and give everyone answers. Instead, it's creating more from Barr and this latest development to investigate the investigators, which is being criticized as really just an effort to undermine the credibility of the Justice Department and more particularly of the FBI. Amash, a Republican, although quite a libertarian sort of outside of the mainstream of his party, Republican, saying he thinks the president should be impeached. And then it wouldn't be a fight with the president if he didn't tweet back at them. And so we saw the president tweeting on Sunday morning that Amash was a loser. So really, this is just more sound and fury. Uh, We could see Don McGahn testify in Congress coming up. We expect the potential bar to testify again. All of this is just a lot of noise, and it's really difficult to break through it if you're trying to get your hand around what is actually going on. But I think that this is just signs that they're going to be litigating this Mueller report probably all the way through 2020, even if both sides have their way. What are they looking for beyond discrediting everything altogether again? There's an effort to explain why it was that the intelligence agencies felt that it was okay to start investigating people attached to a presidential campaign. The president says they were spying on them. The agencies say, no, there were people involved in your campaign who were known at the time to be a risk to American security. They were known by American intelligence. And then they were starting to get tips that these people were trying to talk to our nation's enemies, or at least other nations, to try to influence the election. And so the idea here is to figure out if anyone could figure out who is in the right here and who isn't. The last thing I want to ask you about is our ongoing trade war with China. It's all about the tariffs. And the conversation now is about who is actually paying for it, who's being the most affected by it. Most people tend to agree that it's the country's farmers are hurting because of this. But there are a lot of farmers that are ardent supporters of the president and are still sticking with him despite all of this trade war. This is something that is a real risk for the president. We saw as these talks with China started falling apart, the markets were really all over the place. This is the kind of instability that can really upset the economy. And the president likes to talk about how good of a shape the economy is in, but he is playing with fire. His supporters say it's the other side that's going to get burned. His critics say he's playing with fire and we may get burned. And that's really just not clear right now, especially if this goes on much longer without a resolution. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. In genealogy, we always hit what's called brick walls. And what that means is we can't get past a certain part of our tree with the existing records, at least those that have been located thus far. And so with DNA, we're often able to get clues that lead us in the right direction. Joining us now is Peter Aldis, science reporter for BuzzFeed News. A year ago when 
Cops captured Joseph James D'Angelo, the suspected Golden State killer. The entire world was alerted to this whole notion of the genetic genealogy and how cops were able to track him down using the DNA of family members that were uploaded to a genealogy website. And they followed all the clues and they were able to capture him. Immediately, there were questions about privacy and about did they know that their DNA was subject to these searches and that police could be using these types of things. Critics have been fearing that we're on this slippery slope with genetic genealogy. And right now, for the first time, police have used this genetic genealogy method to identify a suspect in a case of a violent assault. Up until now, these uh, Websites had only let law enforcement use their services in the case to investigate homicides or rapes. So tell us about this case in Utah, Peter. This involved a website called Jedmatch, which is the main one that has been used. Now, this case that happened in Centerville, Utah, it was a nasty attack. There was an elderly woman, a 71-year-old woman, playing the organ on a Saturday evening in November last year in her church. She was the only person there. Someone broke in and put her on a chokehold. And according to the police, she passed out several times. She did, however... So what we were talking about here was, I guess, a burglary and a violent assault. The cops went to the main company who's offering this genealogy service, a company called Parabon Nanolabs, and said, hey, can you help us with this? And they basically said, no, we can't because it's not a homicide or a rape. So we can't upload the DNA to Jedmatch and look for these distant relatives. So that's when the police went direct to Jedmatch and a guy called Curtis Rogers, who runs this service. He provided that in December last year and Parabon worked the case, eventually giving the cop pretty good leads, which led them to a 17-year-old who they've now arrested. They got those leads in late March. They made the arrest in April. How did they obtain the DNA of this suspect? The DNA of the suspect, as often in these cases, was obtained by what's sometimes called abandoned DNA. So once the cops realized who they thought was their prime suspect. He's a high school student. So they got the school resource officer to watch him during lunch and pick up the items he discarded that might carry his DNA. And I think it was a plastic milk container and a box that had contained some bridges. The school resource officer passed it on to the detectives who are working the case and they got that tested in a crime lab in the usual way. There's been surveys done where 91% of people say that they do support this practice to investigate violent crimes. And for nonviolent offenses, it drops down to 46%. Violent crimes were not that precisely defined. There were some examples given, which were rape, murder, arson, I believe, and kidnapping. But assault wasn't mentioned. So we don't really know what people feel about assault. Probably, I would suspect, a large majority would support its use in this case. But I think you put your finger on the bigger issue, is that that's retrospective, right? If a website has terms and conditions that tell its users or its customers, users really in the case of Jebmatch, that law enforcement can use it under a certain set of circumstances. That's their understanding. But that wasn't what happened in this case because the terms of service haven't been changed. It was a one-off decision made on a conversation between a detective and the individual who runs the site. And I think that is why privacy advocates and some genetic genealogists and some genealogists have been very wary of this all along. I think they fear a backlash at some point on privacy. 
that may kind of shut down the whole enterprise. That's really where the focus of the concern is. It's like, well, if you have terms and conditions, you should abide by your terms and conditions. And if you're going to change them, then everybody needs to be notified of that. And that was not the case here. There at BuzzFeed News, you guys did a little experiment where you try to track down 10 BuzzFeed employees based off of their DNA and everything. Just tell us about how time intensive it was to do the research to finally track some down. I mean, my experience was generally if you get more than a closer than about a second cousin, you're probably going to be able to solve this in like a working week. If it was going to take me more than about 30, 35 hours, I was going to say, no, I need to give up here. And in one (laughs) case, I spent that amount of time and gave up. But some were incredibly quick. The fastest I solved in less than an hour, I found who my colleagues were. A little bit easier for me because BuzzFeed only has about 1,200 employees. It's a smaller pool of possible suspects in quote marks there. But it is so, so variable. It can be impossible. It could take you weeks or longer, or you can do it in less than an hour. Peter Aldis, science reporter for BuzzFeed News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Cereal was actually invented by the Kellogg brothers as a quasi-religious meal in order to ward off sexual thoughts and facilitate (laughs) bowel movements. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, get your morning constitutional. Joining us now is Amanda Mull, writer at The Atlantic. Let's talk about breakfast A lot of people say it is the most important meal of the day, although that is very debatable nowadays. You wrote an article about why you're not sold on the traditional American breakfast and you wanted something completely different one time. Tell us a little bit about that and then let's get into the history of breakfast and how we are where we are now. I've never been a huge like convenience breakfast food person. I don't really like sweets. So cereal and things like that never really did my thing. Last year, I woke up after a late night out, a little bit hungover, hungry, (laughs) and just the only thing on my mind was that I wanted a chicken parm sandwich. There's a sandwich shop in my neighborhood that's normally a bagel shop, but sells sandwiches during the lunch hour. And I was like, maybe they'll make me one. Maybe. But, you know, I sort of wrestled with the fact that chicken parm is not a thing that anybody eats for breakfast. And and would it be okay for me to order that? But I also wondered why I felt so weird about it. So I went and ordered one. It was delicious. It was exactly what I wanted. (laughs) And I decided then and there that the idea of breakfast food was sort of stupid. And especially the idea that you have that like cereal or yogurt is, is the appropriate thing to eat. I'm a breakfast fan myself, although I rarely eat it. It's more like a weekend thing or you're going to go out to brunch kind of stuff. I do crave eggs in the morning, but even the convenience and the quick breakfast stuff, I just rarely have time for that. I just wake up, get up and go, go to work. And that's how I do it. But let's describe what a traditional breakfast that everybody knows right now, the the things that you actually don't like. The modern American breakfast is characterized by often something industrially produced, something sweet and something that doesn't need to be heated. So you get your, you know, your packaged cereals, muffins, fruit, yogurt, something like that, something that comes already packaged and you can just tear it open, dump it in a bowl, something very quick like that. At the most, you might microwave it. You get your instant oatmeal in there too. Bagels with cream cheese, stuff like that. Things that are that don't take any dishes, any effort, any thought in the morning is really where the modern American weekday breakfast is right now. It tends to be sweet, tends to be processed. Where does the story of the American breakfast 
begin? It has its roots in Europe, but a lot of people weren't eating breakfast back then that much. Before the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church saw breakfast as gluttonous and sinful. So people, unless they had some medical reason, unless they were infirm or very young, were encouraged to abstain from breakfast. Once the Reformation happened, breakfast was more permissible, but people normally just ate whatever leftovers from what they had the night before, whatever was around, whatever was available. There was no refrigeration. There was no supermarket. So people just ate what was available. It was convenience in a different way. And a lot of those food habits that got developed in Northern Europe in England during that period were imported to America with settlers. And then that sort of became regional in the U.S. Why Southerners have biscuit, why you find more bagels in the Northeast. People developed regional breakfast habits based on what was available, what grew in the weather they were in, what kind of livestock could be raised. So that's where you get like grits. Right. And things like that. And then you get a little bit further in history and you get to the Industrial Revolution, which is where workdays started to be standardized, which meant that the times we ate meals started to be standardized. Commutes started getting longer. The workforce became much more formal. And then you get into the 1900s. And the deeper you get into that century, the longer those commutes get, the more people get recruited into the organized labor force, including women and domestic servants. And because there are fewer housewives, there are fewer maids and cooks in homes, the active cooking breakfast, it's a little bit more difficult. People are crunched for time. Also, food technology comes about where people have refrigeration in their homes. People have the ability to go to the supermarket and buy packaged, industrially produced food. And that's where cereal starts to come about. But cereal was actually invented by the Kellogg brothers as a quasi-religious meal in order to ward off sexual thoughts and facilitate bowel movements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get your morning constitutional. He was uh, really interested in, in getting yes. people to poop. You had mentioned how early breakfasts were really just leftovers, things that you had from the day before. That's why eating that old pizza is kind of a time-honored tradition right there because you're just really reliving how breakfast used to be back in the days. You know, Don't be afraid to eat that pizza there. It wasn't until the 80s where the cereal was kind of cemented into the American breakfast. I mean, earlier before that, but where do we get to this point? Point where everybody said that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And where are we at now where people are kind of all over the place with it? That idea that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, that phrase was first introduced to the American lexicon by people who make grape nuts, who wanted to sell the idea that cereal was healthful and sophisticated and the modern American choice for successful families and for hardworking parents to give their children. You sort of set that foundation in the 50s, mid-century. And then as you move a little bit later towards the late 70s and 80s, you get the nutritional idea that dietary fat is what kills people, is what makes them bigger, is what's responsible for the obesity epidemic. Where you seek to eliminate fat from food, you generally add sugar for taste. So cereal with skim milk and granola bars and things like that were a perfect food for that set of nutritional beliefs that took over in the 80s and that you see continue throughout the 90s and the early 2000s. Now we're in an era where people are a little bit more sensitive about sugar, where people are starting to question the role of sugar in the diet and starting to take a more nuanced look at dietary fat with things like avocados and olive oil. Cereal companies, their profits are like down a little bit in the past 10 years. And you get like Greek yogurt and things like that, but you still it's still cold and fairly sweet, <laughs> but that's because nobody has any time in the morning. Amanda Mull, writer at The Atlantic, thank you very much for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.